How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 237. Welcome to part two of Barbenheimer. Yes, welcome to part two. We did the Barb, and, and now, now we're, we're doing, doing the Unheimer. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, I thought we, oh, you wanted to do a one-two there. No, did we say the same thing? Did it we say like, I think, sound like he's I think I said Enheimer. Yeah. Oh, I think I just said Heimer. Oh. I didn't say end. Oh. Well, I put the end, just that Barbenheimer. I think Gosh, it's, yeah. yeah. Just, we're getting it, we'll, we'll get ourselves back on track, Jack. Yeah, 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 no, exactly, exactly. We're, we're going to slowly get back in sync. That's what a sync clap is for, Zeke. Absolutely. We just have to do it at the end of the show now, so it, because we got to go. Tales later. We gotta, exactly, we've got to work backwards. How, how's your week been, Zeke? It was pretty good. It's Monday, yeah. so it's the start of the week, really. It is the um, start of the I week. I went to a Women's World Cup game, because obviously Australia yeah. is hosting the World Cup, so that was a lot of fun. Um, Very nice. Mostly just taking it easy, yeah. Mm. Back at school. Obviously, a lot of energy goes into teaching, so yeah, it's uh, mm. just getting back into the, the swing of things, I think. Building the momentum up again. Yeah, exactly. How no, about you? you got to ease into it. I'm good. Um... What am I doing this last week? I worked. <laughs> per Honestly, speech. it feels like the the, the oh. week just zipped by. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't. Like it. I. This is. It's kind of cool because when I think of each individual episode of this podcast, it they feel really distinct. Like it feels. Mm. It feels like the conversations. I mean, I mean, I think part of the charm of this podcast is I think the ideal the way mm. to listen to it is literally in chronological order every single episode. Yeah, uh, because sometimes our opinions change on things, and it's kind of cool to track some of that. But I, when I think about each individual episode, I'm like, wow, just like because I think so much happens mm. between every week, or at least it feels like it does. It feels like so much time between each week, so it feels like a whole new, fresh take on brand new films, Zeke. <laughs> yes, especially ones that have had a week to mull, or a week and a half. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, you you've almost had two weeks to to yes. mull on Oppenheimer which I'm extremely excited to talk about. I really, really wish I was able to catch this a second time. It may very well be a crucial second viewing, but I think I am still very much prepared to talk about this film. Zeke, Yeah. do you have any fun trivia for Oppenheimer? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of really uh, handy little knickknacks that are made available for everyone to come and check out. Um, <laughs> free to the public. <laughs> free to the public. But there are little uh, interesting ones. Obviously, there's a lot of recurring cast members mm, um, a lot. over the course of this. Um, surprised to know how many times you would have seen Killian Murphy in a uh, Christopher Nolan film. Six. thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, because he's in all the Batman films. Yes, so obviously. Those, those rank those numbers up high. Uh, Inception, Dark... Uh, Dark uh, Dunkirk and of course this film um, that's uh, that was one that I found interesting another one was uh, the fact that our DOP for this who I'm now struggling to find the name of um, it was your boy was, Hoyt yes had it, Hoyt, here we Hoytema. go um, Hoyt Van Hoytema um, hope I'm saying that right that um, fourth Collaboration with Christopher Nolan, 2014, 2017, 2020, uh, 2022, with that being Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenant. So, more contemporary relationship in the Christopher Nolan life cycle. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like he's now got his boy Ludwig as composing his yeah. soundtrack. So it's kind of like there's a bit of a bit of fresh meat in the Nolan uh, film. I was going to say filmography. I mean, that's accurate. 
fresh meat in the new filmography, mm-hmm. but in terms of his crews, so no, it's it's but uh, it, that's it. It's like well, they're starting to crank up those numbers too. I mean, four it's not an inconsequential yeah. amount. No. What about you, Jake? Well, my fun trivia fact is not available to the public. Well, I'm sure it is to some extent, but I'm going to repeat what my good friend Luke said, uh, who was sitting next to me when I was watching this film and. You know, we, we both went in, and I, and I was sort of talking about how I, I'm not a huge history buff guy, so I obviously know who Oppenheimer is, but I don't know a whole lot about the the intricate, you know, political aspects of the story or any of the fun, interesting facts about the making of the bomb. Mm. You know, I'm just kind of going in fairly blind, which is actually what Christopher Nolan uh, has openly said is his ideal audience for this film, is someone who knows of the man but doesn't know a lot of the details, mm-hmm. so... Uh, that was really exciting. And his response to that was that he is a bit more of a history buff, so he's going to see what his take is on the film. And, uh, yeah, everyone everyone sort of pats themselves on the back sometimes. Like, okay, sure, history buff, sure. Um, but I was a little surprised. There was one scene in the film where uh, the man himself, Oppenheimer, is chasing down Einstein in the park. And before either of them even turn around, he immediately noticed, like, oh, crap, that's Kurt Goodell. They, and, of course, he introduced himself in the film... Uh, but I was quite surprised. I was like, oh, wow, maybe he does know his stuff. He's recognizing these people right off the bat. And the thing he was saying, now, it could be wrong. Well, rather, he could be wrong. But he was telling me a bit about this person and, and the fact that Oppenheimer chasing him through the park sort of mirrors the story that Goodell has when he uh, came up with, I guess, his paper on how mathematics is incomplete. Mm. Or, I guess, the idea of paradoxes and this sentence is uh, is false or... Uh, I, I think that's where a lot of his uh, research comes in, and it mirrors the scene where he was chasing Oppenheimer uh, through Einstein through the park, excuse me, and he first rejected what he had to say, and eventually they did become friends in real life. Now the thing I could be wrong is that Luke was saying the timing of this doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the context of the film. It feels more like a wink and a nod to the audience. I'm like, hey, these two like to go on walks along the park, and not. The timeline's not perfectly accurate, but we're yeah. going to do this is because there will be people in the audience who know The Lukes that. of the world. The Lukes of the world. So uh, I wanted to shout out Luke for that. I could be completely wrong. The timing may be uh, perfect. Yeah. I'm just, I'm repeating what he said. So every, everyone pull out your pitchforks and chase Luke if I am incorrect about that. But I thought that was very interesting. This really is the Avengers of the scientific community of the 1940s. So... <laughs> <laughs> So there's a, there's a lot of appearances to be had. Well, hey, Robert Downey Jr. is in this film. <clears throat> he is. He is. I know. He should be He should be the new uh, I'm starting a team. He technically gets that moment in The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, well, He's the one that's like, I'm building a team. So there you go. There you go. Jake, have you caught anything in the last week? I caught a couple of films. I actually caught two films from Netflix. Oh, okay. And, and i got to say, little little impressed. A little impressed. Every now and then, Netflix... I mean, they... they they peddle out so much junk. I don't know how many hundreds of films they make per year at this point. But these two in particular are very recent releases. I was like, okay, here we go. I, I like this. Mm-hmm. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Nimona, yeah. which was an animated film. I think we both talked about wanting to see this recently. Yes. Um, I caught it last night, and I didn't realize it's actually based on a graphic novel, which uh, I'm guessing in terms of the art style, is very similar. Mm. And I think part of the reason this uh, graphic novel was so popular is because of its analogs for the LGBTQ community. And and I, I, I'm not going to go too much into the story, but there are some fantastically interwoven uh, 
character arcs here that I totally feel like gender binary analogs. Mm. Um, all the all the character without it being explicitly said, but is is absolutely gender binary, and, and a lot of the uh, the story in terms of conforming to societal norms and like pretending to be normal versus sort of embracing yeah. who they are. There's a lot of that in there, which I thought was very clever. Um, but even as this, as a base animated story, I thought it was quite fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does go into... It's, I was surprised at how layered it is in terms of the overarching story of the powers that be and how they can villainize people. And and you know what? Oppenheimer is actually a pretty perfect example of that. <laughs> as we're gonna, it's a Those bit two more, should have gone head-to-head. I know. It should have been the, it should have been the uh, Nimonaheimer or the uh, Oppenmona. <laughs> it should have been one of those. Uh, this one's a little more... Got that fairy tale twist because it is... There's like night shipped and uh, the the um, God, what's it called? The medieval sort of aesthetic, uh, but then it's also mixed with futuristic uh, city vibes. And there's like holograms everywhere, so it's like a tiny bit cyberpunk esque in that regard. And I thought that was an interesting aesthetic to mix mm-hmm. together. But it also talks about, I guess, how ancient the leadership are in this scenario, and that they're not growing with the times, and it. And it Again, part of the fact that they're villainizing people. And it's really shown by the relationship between these two characters. A knight who's framed for a murder and is now sort of public enemy number one. And the journey he goes on with this uh, shape-shifting teenager, the uh, the titular character of the mm. film, so to speak. And, of course, there's that relationship bond that develops between the two of them that's really sweet. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought it was a very fun time. Mm. I'm, sh- there's, I'm sure a lot of people would find it very fun and emotional as well it has all those beats in there which i thought were really good the animation style i can't say i was blown away the same way that i was watching like a spider verse or a a cartoon saloon like a wolf walkers for example it doesn't have that much expression i would say it's very much an ode to the graphic novel aesthetic that that it's based on so there is that and i know there was some behind this i think blue sky were working on this before they were shut down and then it got moved so there was a lot of those behind the scenes issues with getting the film even completed so i can respect that but you know it has its place and i, I still enjoyed watching i enjoyed namona's sort of puffer fish flexible face and this was even before the reveal of, of them being a, a shapeshifter so to speak yeah so there was a lot in there that i really appreciated um the other netflix film i caught was they cloned tyrone I was surprised. They did it. They did it. They cloned him. (laughs) So what was that about? So that was, um, again, I was quite surprised. And I think I mentioned this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I I said it was, was, the script was actually from the Blacklist, the famed Blacklist. Yes. Of of unproduced scripts that were generally favored by people. And it obviously did go on to get produced with Netflix funding. And I could see why, because it is a very clever intermix of like, uh, sci-fi mystery comedy satire um black exploitation that's a really big thing i mean it, this film feels like it came right out of the 70s it's got like the heavy film grain and it's just that filmic look i love the lighting in this film because it's just so atmospheric there's scenes at night uh just like on these random suburban uh <laughs> streets that just feel like beautifully lit they've obviously had these really mm-hmm. crazy rigs to to light all that but even just there's a scene in a church that's just like super orange. They've got this harsh orange coming through the window that really creates this interesting effect. And then they've got all these padded rooms that are blue. Obviously, we're so used to right. padded rooms being plain and boring and, and white. But 
yeah, so there was a lot of that flair throughout the film, which I really appreciated. And again, 70s exploitation. so it's like there's like hustlers trying to sell CDs, there's tons of fried chicken ads, all the costumes are super flashy, all the cars are super retro, so it, it really goes hardcore on that. Mm. But at its core, it's ultimately a mystery film that's headed by John Boyega, Jamie Foxx, Tayona Paris, who are all super fun, really work well together, you know, many times I'm laughing just because of like their banter and their dynamic. Yeah. It's really funny. Um, and th- there's a lot of the intertextuality as well. There's constant references to like Nancy Drew and a clockwork orange and, and films like that. And I, I don't want to get too much into what the mystery is. Cause that's obviously a huge part of the fun mm. of this film is, is learning about like the sinister underbelly that this town. So it's got that sorry to bother you vibe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it goes as crazy as sorry to bother you. I, I think sorry to bother you. It sort of starts out a bit more grounded and then really takes you for that turn. Mm. This film from the from pretty early on, you you have an understanding of like to what level is this going to be like a crazy sci-fi mm-hmm. adventure. You kind of know from early on the the type of ride you're getting into. But it was just really fun, really enjoyable. I'm glad films like this still get made today because it just it feels it, it kind of feels like a 30, 40 million dollar budget film that just doesn't really have a place. Yeah. And I'm really surprised that Netflix released it, but also unfortunately released it during Barbenheimer because I don't, I don't think a lot of people are going to give it the love that it perhaps deserves. But it, could be, it could be a late bloomer. It could be something that gets yeah. a resurgence after the, the dust has settled. I think. Exactly. It's probably going to fall into like that the nice guys category. Well, I, yes. I don't remember how much that exploded at the time. I never saw it. But it does. It like I know people look back on it very favorably. Yes, and it's just one of those cult modern cult films. So, yeah. well, you just got to be a peacock. <laughs> you got to let me fly. Uh, oh God! It, well, oh, I said the nice guys. I meant the good. Wait, that's what, the other guys. Sorry, the other nice guys. guys. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Nice good. guys. I said the, the right same. thing. Right there. You go. I, I knew I messed up somewhere, or I knew I knew my wise. I know what you're talking about. The, the yes, Gosling. You're right. The other Russell guys. Russell Crowe. Got. Yep. 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 Exactly. I have seen the other guys and. I think it might be due for a rewatch. I saw that in cinemas when I was like 12. A lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I didn't like it at the time, so I got to... Wow. I might have not just been in the right headspace. It's the only place you can put Mark Wahlberg, but that's my... They killed Dwayne Johnson in the first 10 (laughs) minutes, and you can't do that. I doubt I said that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Zeke, what have you been catching in the last week? Absolutely nothing. Um, Oh, excellent. No, it's been a... I don't know why. (laughs) It's just been a quiet week. I think it's because... Oh, I just, I don't know. I think with school starting up and then the weekend rolled around and because did the, the Barbenheimer doubleheader, I think. Yeah. Um, Took it out of you. And I, I watched a lot in the the week leading up to it. Mm. So um, I have films that are, are needing to be finished that mm. I don't want to give a full critical uh, oh, I see. You kind of like midway. I almost watched Mars. I wanted to watch Marcel. The shell with su- shoes on. Ooh, um, I would, yeah, I would love to. Um, but I didn't get around to to giving it a watch. Mm. Um, no, yeah, it just wasn't a wasn't a weekend for Zeke at the cinema or watching any films. Unfortunately, um, it's okay. It's probably going to be a big week coming up for Jake at the cinema because I've deleted half my bloody streaming services. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. Sorry about that, Zeke. No, it's okay. <laughs> and I had it was at Disney Plus. And it's fi- well, I probably I did watch the first two episodes of The Bear, which is on Disney Plus, oh, which nice. centers around nice. Um, promising? a yeah, very promising. Mm. It's about a disgraced uh, chef 
going back to his brother's, his deceased brother's sandwich shop and trying to get it off the ground. And mm-hmm. It's got a real, uh, like a more swearing, greedier version of Ted Lasso. Vibe. Oh, interesting. Um, but I did enjoy the first two episodes. So, nice. Um, I know that season two came out and that's, I think in a not succession world, it might be getting a little bit more acclaim and attention. But I, I uh, will say, I've been noticing a lot of hype for it, though. Yes, like obviously not nearly on the level that that succession had. And and by the way, I'm pretty sure they have announced the Emmys are delayed indefinitely until they get this right, uh, the actors and writers strike sorted. Yes, I but, did. Um, I did see. Uh, so that's all happening. Brian Cox out on the. Oh, line. is he on the picket lines? Yes. Nice. So. Well done. Who did um, I see on the pick? Well, obviously Brian Cranston was a, that was reported everywhere. He was yep. in his speech and everything. Um, yeah, no, it, this is gonna be a long one, man. This is gonna be a real long one, and and I think people, I I'm gonna be honest. Even I wasn't expecting to the degree of like everything's getting delayed. Everything, like even yeah. like Dune Two's well out there, and I like this is the thing I love. And again, just how despicable some of these studios are. I've seen so much people getting upset about these strikes because they just delayed the Beyond the Spider Verse, and it's like. There were literally reports a month ago from the animes being like, the film's not going to be done by March. There's yeah. absolutely no way. This is them using it as an excuse for a film that was clearly never going to come out in March anyway. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there for everyone. But yeah, uh, no, I, I'm surprised I'm, at the, the immediate effect this is all having. Yeah, and that, that general public feedback. So whenever I've talked about it, you know, I was with my year nine today and we're talking about like uh, the Western genre and I bring up obviously the writer strike and all this and yeah. their immediate feedback is, oh, well, it sucks because we're not like Deadpool 3 is going to be delayed and Ryan Reynolds can't ad-lib any of his lines because mm. as per the, the strikes that thing. That does suck, doesn't it? That is a shame. And I did. I said, if only a... somebody could do anything about that. Yeah. I said, well, <laughs> pay, your, pay your writers. <laughs> Um, because Ryan's really not that funny without those bass lines to come off. Um, there's going to be a compilation of all of our podcast episodes where we just sneak in like Ryan Reynolds, like little stabs. He'll come. <laughs> he'll be, around. One day he'll come and he'll just destroy us. Like he'll just <laughs> absolute. He'll come on just to be the or it'll be like we'll invite him on. We'll boom like one day and then we'll have him on and he'll remember all of these like little jabs. It'll be, like, I watched, it'll be like Oppenheimer I having all these visions. Yeah. And it's, yes. But it's it's him having visions about all the things we said about yeah. him. It's that, uh, <laughs> it's every jab. It's like, welcome to Wrexham, season two is coming out. And I'm watching it for Rob McElwenny and not for Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, or sorry. the time I called his performance, uh, Limp Dick, which is. Not not my style usually, yes. but it, I think his performance deserved it. Oh, I'm it I'm sure it. he's really struggling with his billion dollars that he has from all of his other things. Mm. And he actually, that's not an exaggeration. He does actually have that much money. He's like worth a fortune because yeah. of his like. That no, doesn't surprise me. He's not because of his acting, because of all the other stuff he does. But um, yes, I'm sure he's really suffering. Yeah, no, um, he better be now that no, my Disney Plus subscription's gone. Yeah, well, he should do himself a favor. He should join the picket line. Because, yeah, like you said, the more high-profile people that uh, go on, the better. You know, like you said, that's the that's the coverage aspect. Um, yeah. But, you know, it did actually have something to do with the film of the week that we're going to be talking about. So, uh, Ryan, do you have anything? Ryan Reynolds? No, Oppenheimer. Oh, strikes. Right, 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 right. No, no more Ryan Reynolds. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah, He's yeah. already had too much airtime. Good. Um, He's, he was the only white guy in Hollywood that wasn't hired to be an Oppenheimer, so... 
Both Ryans, actually. <laughs> yeah, one of them was busy. Um, exactly. But, hey, Jake, you got anything else you'd like to say before we move into our film of the week? Um, yeah, I guess in, in terms of career updates, Skin and Blister's moving along. Very nice. We had a we had a six hour meeting yesterday the, for the sound design because the music's all done. Yep. And uh, we're doing the five point one surround mix, so it's very exciting. It's very loud, which we like. Very good. I don't know if it's quite as loud as a as the film of the week is, but maybe hey, maybe we'll, maybe I'll make it so. <laughs> that is very exciting. Uh, do we get any inside scoop on when that might be? Uh... Oh, it's tricky. I mean, I I'm hoping that the the 5.1 soundtrack's ready to go with, within the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still some visual effects and color grading to be done. But it's pretty close. I'd say the film's about 80 to 85 percent complete now. Wow, which is very exciting. Goes by quick. It does. It will definitely be done sometime this year. Very definitely. exciting. Well, then it's time for us to move into our film of the week, Jake. As you said, this is a two-parter. We're completing the Barbie Hammer, but what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Oppenheimer. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Two, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves Jr. appoints physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer to work on a top-secret project, the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work comes to fruition on July 16, 1945, as they witness the world's first nuclear explosion, forever changing the course of history. Wait a second. 1945... The ducks but, alive. But well, <laughs> the ducks alive. But World War Two have already ended by then, Zeke. That's a very valid point. Oh, this movie's all wrong. Yes, that's, that's not true. No, There's not a... quite. <laughs> not quite true. It I... was over for one country. <laughs> wasn't the one that got the bombs. Oh, there you go. Well, before we jump in, I wanted to say happy birthday to Mr. Christopher Nolan for yesterday. Oh wow, this timed well then, didn't it? It worked out really well. I'm glad the coin toss did its magic. There you go. It's deliberate. It was also uh, Richard Linklater's birthday yesterday. Jeez. Imagine having two uh, filmmakers of those caliber on the same day. They should have a little birthday chat. They both wear like little birthday hats. Yes. And talk about filmmaking. Yes. Well, as as you pointed out, you made a joke about every white guy in Hollywood being on this film. (laughs) Um, You're not wrong. It's a massive ensemble cast, and possibly the. I had to laugh, and because it's a three-hour film. Yes. And Rami, I'm gonna say this now, not that it's, okay. but Rami Malek appears in like the first hour, and says nothing. 
and then appears in the second hour and says nothing. And I was, I got to the point where I was like, I actually turned and leaned over to Lucinda and went, that's so weird. He's went from an Oscar to not speaking like, at all. <laughs> and now Rabbi does get his moment, but... He does. Well, he, he's like the Chekhov's gun. You put him in the, you put him in the first act and you, he's going to go off by the third act. Yes. But go. it was quite funny because, you know, <laughs> well, there was, you know, there was a lot of, there was actually more of like Jack Quaid and who were, you know, some of the ensemble of yes. the, and Benny Safty. Benny Safty's in it quite a bit. Just very happy to see. And Jason Clark. Yeah. I straight up did not recognize him. It was after I finished the film. I was like, oh, that's who he was. Because yeah. they did the comparison photographs next to each other. Um, Kenneth uh, Branner, I noticed straight away. Yes. I was like, hey, I forgot he's in this. Bloody hell, Casey Affleck, Gary Oldman. I swear half my um, half the people on my screen didn't recognize Gary Oldman. Oh, I, I recognized as soon as he spoke. He yeah, has, yeah. There's, there's something about Gary Oldman's, like, American that's just a little... Uh, it's a little old. Well, it's just Gary but Oldman. But he's, he's done it so many times, his yeah. American accent, so... Dane DeHaan, it was very, very, very late in the film, and I was like, oh, crap, that's him. <laughs> Which yeah. I love. I mean, that's a testament to just, like, the makeup and um, even just, like, their costume. And then, of course, the performances, because a lot of them are, are doing such drastically different performances from, from what we're used to. I mean, Dane DeHaan, like, he's either creepy and evil in Spider-Man or he's creepy and evil in Chronicle. <laughs> and now he's just evil, not as creepy. <laughs> but evil and by the book, yeah. mostly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yes, what it, a cast. It is a massive cast um, in terms of just sheer size and scope. But yeah, it did, it did make me chuckle. Um, uh, it's it's crazy. I mean, even in the first bits, like obviously eventually you pick up it's Robert Downey Jr., but it took Luce a good five minutes to work really? out that that was Robert Downey Jr. Nice. Well, I think it's just because it's such a, it's so far away. It's, from, yeah, from what we're known for. From That's what true. we know him as. I mean, he's kind of like this old... Uh, looking man in this mm. it's quite uh, uh, charismatic on the surface and calm and calculated but mm. obviously that doesn't hit its boiler and fever point um, there's a lot of there is a lot a lot of moving pieces in this film there is certainly a lot I mean this is a, an overwhelming film to talk about but I think that's probably a good place to start is like just our general thought because I generally don't know like I we haven't talked about it in no. the last two weeks, We've, we obviously focused on Barbie last week, yep. but um, I think my takeaway is, and I, I don't, I have a lot to say about the editing of the film, but right off the bat, I will give it defense that it, it certainly didn't get into Tenet, uh, into that Tenet area where we were both very disappointed with Tenet, and it was it almost just felt interpretable in so many mm. ways, and and for as as fast paced and whiplash as the, as the editing is in this film. Um, not only did I feel like I retained and followed this overly complex story through and through, but I even I retained way more of it than I mm. would have imagined because I generally thought this film was edited. It, it felt like every scene was squished into that 45-second window of every scene has to go by as fast as an establishing drone shot. Um, but that um, it's almost a compliment to talk about that and then in the same token be like, I also tracked, like the film still tracked and it all still made sense, and I still followed the character arcs, and the, the moments that needed to be tense were tense, and the moments that needed to be scary were very scary. Mm. Um, I think this is the film that Nolan was probably born to make, and not necessarily because of all the you know the intense plot and the fast pace and the 
the whole visual aspect of the film. But this is probably the the most he's ever left his comfort zone ever. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot in this film that you could argue is it's it's kind of the equivalent to a Nolan's. This is Nolan's like French Dispatch. You know, it feels like yeah. a culmination. Yeah. You know, if this was a director's corner, although he was our first ever director, he was, yes. in, um, this really does it is kind of a perfect companion piece to that conversation we had in Memento, where mm. we're seeing a lot of that early raw talent um, displacing timelines, um, yeah. in, and even in Memento, the the, the changing of from color to monochromatic, yes. which. We don't see in any other Nolan film, mm. um, not unless it's in the following. But you've seen the following. I think so. the following is purely a black and white film. There you go. So that's the only one that also plays around with this technique, and it's a it's a used actually kind of more in the opposite way in this mm. um, film as it is in that film, and it really does feel like that perfect sort of uh, bookend to. Not saying that he'll never make a film again, but it's a really good moment to be like, and you can say that this is the block of this era or or this is a good way of, of bookending that career in a sense. Mm. And it's, um, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of directors lately have done that film where it's not necessarily their last film, but it almost feels like it. Yeah. And you talk about Spielberg with The Fablemans. We, uh, Wes Anderson with the French obviously he's already made another film Scorsese with the Irishman yeah yeah it feels like directors have been doing that a lot lately just like doing not what not what is their final film but uh, and I think maybe that's partly to do with COVID as well as there's this mm. inevitability of death not just for them literally but in terms of the industry as we know it and this is obviously a showcase for the industry as we know it with the 70 millimeter physical uh, film reel that's yeah. breaking IMAX projectors because of how heavy it is. And and we'll talk about that because I think that's a big reason why the editing is the way it is. It's not even just like the film has to be three hours. It's, it has to be three hours because of the physical print of mm-hmm. it is <laughs> is literally pushing the, the boundaries of what IMAX can even do. So we can talk about that. But when, when I talk about getting out of his comfort zone, and it's, this isn't the first time he's done it necessarily, but the amount of surrealistic imagery and sound scope in this mm. film, I was blown away. I, di- I didn't think Nolan was, frankly, even capable of, of doing that. And the the one exception I can think of is in Batman Begins, of course, with the Scarecrow hallucinogenic stuff. But that feels so much more rooted into the plot of the film, while here it's very much about we're following this man, we are in his headspace, this is, as far as I can tell, the only um, mainstream script ever written in the first person, which, again, very interesting that Nolan's the one to do that. It wasn't yeah. you know some other um, crazy French auteur. It was Christopher Nolan that, that makes that decision to do yeah. the first person script. Um, I, I, was, I was absolutely riveted by all of that stuff. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a very um, curt and concise uh, biopic about the man that, that this film really tries and makes you appreciate that he may be one of the most important men in American and world history because of his creation. Yeah. And it, and it is truly fundamental. Uh, I think it's a, a film that everyone needs to watch because of that sort of contextual importance. And mm. I know there are countless, a number we talked about it last week. There's a number of documentaries centered around the same topic, but mm. there's something, there's always going to be something palatable about, a dramatic recreation of some yes. uh, historical uh, biopic film because 
um, people gravitate to stories and emotions and characters and people and documentaries or often seek to at least on the surface appear objective and just present sure. the facts as is and I think there's a lot of complexities in this life and there there are definitely things I walked away from the film and being like well I feel like that is yeah a definitive full stop on what I know a Nolan film to be right um because there were elements that we can see in other films that feel like they've been pushed into this one and like you said um the sound the playing around with sound we don't see too much of that surrealism stuff anywhere other than yeah in batman begins with the bats is the one i always think of like oh the, that's the, true yeah there's the, that as well the blurting of the bats and, and but then he, then he's endlessly praised for even grounding his batman sequel yes you know far more than than what we see in batman begins there's no hallucinogenic or like the batman oh sorry the the literal bats flying around in swarms and so it, it kind of feels like he's almost being reinforced to not do that again and I love yes. that for a film like Oppenheimer. He's just kind of like, screw it, I'm going to go for it again. Because that's but, what that's what the story needs, is for us to see the inside of his head. It does. I mean, it's that concept, you know, we're, we're following a time in which they actually physically couldn't see what an atom looked like. And mm. I, I think it's, from a historical point of view, the fact that a bomb was created before they could actually visualize what an atom looks like <laughs> is remarkable. I mean, mm. they make the bomb in, in 45 they don't actually see what atoms look like for another eight, nine years. Yeah, wow. Like, visually. And I think that that's the the world that this film is doing, and it needs to kind of move at that phonetic pace for a while. Um, and it's... it's quite, Look, I do admit, it still can be at times that little bit disorientating. Oh, it is dense. I'm um, not taking that away from the film. It is a dense experience. But what, what do you do? I mean... Mm. Do you take out the Robert Downey Jr. aspect? No, you can't afford that because no. the Strauss aspects is so crucial to why he loses his homeland security, which mm. feels like for someone who basically, well, won a war and saved countless lives, mm. countless American lives, albeit, um, would never lose that privilege. And yet the narrative gets skewed and changed over time because of political movements mm. and personal Espionage agendas and, and, and red scares and, and all of that stuff. I think that was a huge part of the film for me, especially, you know, it's doing the social network thing where it's not only bouncing back and forth in time, but it's doing so through hearings and unreliable narrations and, mm. and all of that, which I thought was really fascinating. And especially because I love that Nolan said ahead of time, or he, he told people ahead of time that the black and white sequences were going to be, like the objective view into into the history that's being recorded and the colored sequences were going to be Oppenheimer's subjective view of maybe those same events mm. and what they do within the film obviously that's knowledge that that you can walk in watch the film walk away and not necessarily take that away yes but what is in the film is the two little subtexts that come up which i think is fission and fusion yes um which also helps to contextualize basically the 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 event and then the fallout of that event and for me both sides showcase like you said there's so much political espionage and and trickery going on and a manipulation that i feel like for me the first half well really the whole film is about that manipulation but for me oppenheimer's manipulation self-manipulation mm. is he is trying to f manipulate all of these different things and all these different motivations to constantly convince himself that this bomb needs to be made. 
And it's kind of like that that joke I made earlier about, you know, in 1945. The whole motivation was, we need to build this before the Nazis do. Yeah. And there's a fantastic scene where he goes back to that school and all the students are gathered around, not protesting, but they're all having this meeting about, well, World War II's ending. Hitler's dead and, and, and all the Nazis are sort of retreating. Like, why is the bomb still being made? And he has that big speech about why it still needs to be made. And I feel like the entire film was really just that. It was this, a constant list of justifications for why we had to create this thing. Yeah. And, of course, the aftermath is that Oppenheimer is immensely guilt-written by having done w- what he's done and how the government manipulates that for their own benefit. I can't remember which character says that line. I think it's after he meets with Matt Damon where and it's like you said, you, it's someone who's done this for their country to essentially win a war, quote-unquote, how on earth could they possibly have their you know uh, rights ripped, ripped away from them? And I think that's a line one of the characters says mm. is, you're useful until, and then once you've done it, you're not useful anymore. Yeah. And they can do whatever they want to. And yeah. he was warned of that years before the bomb was finished being created. Yeah, so he I, was. Yeah. And it's weird because there's, the film is definitely not trying to paint the, the eat like there's an egotistical nature there. Mm. There is a, there is a sense of, but nor is it trying to sense that this was some patriotic duty. Mm. It, it, it walks and that becomes very clear when, you know, when they first go to Los Alamos and, and Oppenheim is told by Leslie to wear a uniform and is quick to yeah, kind of get rid of that. Get rid of that because it's not about a military representation. It's not about being a, a part of the cause. It's mm. about It's like the scientific drive behind it. It's about the inevitability in which well basically a couple of those characters saw how far Germany were ahead mm. um and they didn't beat them in that race it was the anti-semitism of the dictator <laughs> that's that a fantastic line yeah. and it's remarkable to think about because that's historically true and and i think that's when obviously when that um bomb when those bombs get dropped in japan mm. and at this point you've seen the magnitude of of power and, and scope but you've also seen uh you've considered just how easily that could have been the states yeah could have Um, easily been flipped on its head exactly um if one person had different perspectives and was Mm -hmm. more about yeah about one thing or the other and and that's that's scary to think about um and i do love the the idea of, of the color the subjective reality of of um oppenheimer and and that these black and white hearings are just the presentation of facts. It's mm. quite interesting. I think um, it makes the hearing a little interesting because that's Opp- I guess it's Oppenheimer's perspective, but it's not. Is that the? It's interesting to see how that one's considered that subjective discourse. Yeah, I guess um, that's where it's either one or two things. Is that's where the surrealistic imagery comes from, where. Um, you know, now Florence Pugh is in the room naked and they're, <laughs> they're having sex right on the chair. Mm. Um, or like the the lights overexposed, simulating the, the blast of the bomb as they're yelling at him. And I guess, I guess all of those are meant to be those colored sequences and, and like the pressure that he's feeling in that moment. Were there that same hearing? Was it black and white and color in the same hearing? I can't remember. In the boardroom one? Um, with Oppenheimer in there, yeah. 
No, they were always just... They were all coloured? The only ones that were black and white were the Strauss hearing. Right, And yes. the meeting at the hotel. Yes, okay. Between all characters who are discussing whether they're going to drop the... Um, even the scene in the boardroom where they're talking about where they're going to drop them, that's in colour. And that's the meeting right, with the yeah. president is with colour. Of course, where they decide um, Kyoto is a... It's a nice holiday place, so we can't blow that up. <laughs> that's 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 oh it's so good like it's it's so messed up and you you just know that these are the kind of conversations that are happening in those rooms but yeah that's the reality of it and it's just like how, how the fact that that line is said with such sincerity and and calmness there's no weight at all no to when he says that and the room kind of just has that one little moment of like a hiccup almost mm. and it's like all right we're back to back to discussion I think the scene that best encapu- encapsulates the difference between the coloured scenes and the and the black and white scenes, there's the moment um, where Robbie Downey Jr.'s... This is towards the end, and, and his hearing is falling apart. He's he's being outed, of course, by Rami Malek. David Hill, I should say. Mm. And he's basically going on this crazy tyrant about Oppenheimer being like... He, he only did it for like the fame and the glory and the honour, and it's all very selfish. And then the the juxtaposition of that is Oppenheimer in color when he's essentially getting absolutely railed in his hearing and the, and the atomic blast is going on outside and, and just like, that's not the glory at all. It's the grief that he's experiencing. That, yeah. I think for me, that was like the best example of the juxtaposed colored and black and white scenes working in tangent together. Mm. Um, just excellent stuff from Nolan. Yeah, that was definitely, um, it's amazing because it's three hours, but we walked out and we genuinely didn't feel like it was three hours. Like it oh, did, yeah. it, it does. It's very well paced, um, and builds and it, it creates intrigue for different reasons at different times. Mm. Um, in you know, in that middle part, it 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 feels like it's this kind of almost uh, romance film between like Groves and 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 Oppenheimer at a point there <laughs> where. Where Groves' character is is sort of serving as this this great protector, particularly when um, Murphy's trying to redirect the sort of Soviet communism energy elsewhere, and then mm. finds himself in a room with Casey Affleck and his most <laughs> menacing cameo state ever. Yeah, basically, is never cameo, rocks yeah. up again. <laughs> um, yeah, look, there, there, there's a lot to sort of unpack. I, I think. Um, the the dynamic obviously between Pew and um Murphy's mm. characters obviously in um obviously Oppenheimer and uh, Gene Tat- Tatlock yeah um I think that's an interesting sort of dynamic that needs to be explored because it's a big part of the film it is a big part and and it's it's funny because that was one of the parts that was well there were two things that were spoiled for me before going into the movie which I was a little annoyed about because I the whole the fact that the fact that he was cheating on his wife with her. I was, yes. I was spoiled that well Only in once, advance. But yes. Yes, yes. And I, I thought I was unspoiled. I was like, oh, he's dating her first before he meets his wife. And oh, never mind. But but the other spoiler was uh, on my damn movie ticket where in the rating it says a suicide scene. I was like, oh, I can have a guess who that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Do not you mean knowing the, the, the real... irrational crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, no, look, but I, I think that's really important. So obviously, I mean, the whole. The whole centerpiece is the fact that she's very heavily an activist, uh, a communist activist, uh, and 
activists my god i can't speak and that they meet i guess like one of the parties yeah the the communism parties yes. right and it's... she i guess she's like an official member there yes and socialist that... party sorry that's, that's right that's right called. that's right socialists um and they develop it's an interesting relation because when we first see it yeah oppenheimer's very much chasing after the dissolving with the flowers and yeah, she refuses I've seen that flowers. relationship before. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Saw that. Completely enamored with her. But yeah, but then there's such... And it, it's funny because you figure the trailer, like the one shot you get of Florence Pugh in the trailer is her looking just so devastated looking up at him. And in the context of the trailer, it's being edited before this, like the mass destruction or the inevitable destruction of the bomb they're creating. And in the reality of the movie, he's essentially just dumping her. And it's funny how you have those, the scale that seems somewhat smaller, and obviously it has a massive impact on Oppenheimer, the Mm. fact that what he did caused her to kill herself later in the film. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that's obviously the big part of why it's in the plot there. But it was, yeah, again, I think that a part of it's just the, the love affairs. And how that kind of gets in the way and how the government's using that to sort of pin him. And I think it's his brother as well who actually initially brings him to that party who's a communist as well. And he's the one that talks about, like, spies feeding through information and kind of floats that idea for Oppenheimer. It's definitely an aspect because um, though it doesn't fuel any of the physics... physicist aspects or those principles or anything like that there are he's quite renowned i mean a lot of people make those jokes about him being a bit of a womanizer yes um and i think that obviously pew's character is really important in terms of kind of being this weird sort of yeah like this um unexplainable attraction i mean the i think it's the whole point is to deconstruct the the idea of Oppenheimer, who's this genius, who who's who knows things that most of us will never even remotely come close to touching the surface of, mm. but still has those innate human problems of being attracted right. to, well, attracted to two different women at once. Well, so. and 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 also being attracted to two women that are not necessarily in mentally the strongest or financially in the strongest positions. I mean. Mm. Kitty, Emily Blunt's character, is in her fourth marriage by the time she gets around to Oppenheimer. Damn girl. Um, in which <laughs> their their whole scene when they decide to get together is she talks about that she loves someone, they died, then she got married again, then she got married again, and she's actually having an affair with Oppenheimer mm. when they first meet because they go and ride out in the middle of New Mexico and yeah. she's basically like, well, stuff it, might as well, what's number four going to do? <laughs> Um, I find it so interesting, yeah, in a film that's this, like, stuffed and jam-packed that they, they're able to give someone like Kitty just enough backstory that you sort of understand her motivation for every single scene she's in because you immediately get that aspect of, okay, well, she's married multiple people. She has a biology background that she's sort of... She's almost envious of that in the sense that she can't really use it in this role as, like, disgruntled housewife that she keeps getting placed into. And even just the... the disdain she has for her own baby constantly yeah i found it really interesting but that's it it's like it's particularly in those those earlier scenes there yeah, when she has the baby she really struggles she's she's getting intoxicated and mm. and and murphy's gonna have to constantly rely on his friends to basically look after the child and meanwhile he's 
you know so it's it's that inescapable some of some people unfortunately they do they suffer from attracting themselves to these volatile forces and it's almost you know and not to be pun intended but it is that volatile aspect you know Mm. the these explosive characters that you know when he gives uh flowers to florence Pugh's character and um in jean she throws them away every time tells him no flipping flowers and and yet then has a child with someone who's in their fourth marriage and only really when that child sort of grows up a little bit, we only see a little bit of growth. The difference between the two women in mm. this film is that Blunt's the one that picks up the broken and yeah. down uh, killing, you know, Oppenheimer character. Yeah, well, that that's a great scene because, again, that's another example of the trailer showing just that quick flash of the two of them and, and he's obviously distraught and, like, leaning up against, like, a rock surface or... I can't remember what it is, and then she's leaning down with him. And again, you, you the trailer almost tricks you into thinking that this is about this more monumental explosion that's about to happen. And it's, in terms of the personal stakes, it's a much more equally explosive result of him learning that, that she killed herself and that he feels immensely guilty about about that. And, and her response is, obviously, it's multifaceted and layered because it's like, it, it's the the what's the word? What's well, the it's, word I'm I, I, it's that whole thing where it's that empathy. home wrecker. That's well, what I'm yeah, thinking. I mean, yeah. like at the end of the day, they did the exact same thing mm. to uh, uh, you know Emily Blunt's husband, yeah. um, Kitty's former husband. But They're at the same time, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is but it's this, this, but it it's almost in that moment where she's so able in her performance to give this layer of anger, but also feeling sorry because, you know, it is someone that they've cared about for a really long period of time. And it's such a horrible fate to befall anyone. Um, but she's also able to see that this is on the eve of one of the biggest mm. moments in history and yeah. in his career. And she needs to, despite, like you said, in those opening scenes with her, we see that there's so much resentment for being that begrudged housewife. Mm. Her arc is not, that she becomes okay with being a housewife, but she accepts her value in that relationship to an extent. Um, there definitely doesn't feel like there's a lot of love until the final scene many years later. Yes. And I, and I love the way they introduce her as well. She's just in the background of so many of those hearing shots before we actually kind of move into her. Um, but like you said, she, she really stands up for him yeah. in that hearing. But what I love about, that scene of, of, of her essentially telling him to get his shit together yeah. when he finds out about Gene Tadlock is that it almost, I just realized, it almost mirrors the Gary Oldman scene where the president's telling him to stop being a crybaby. It's actually very similar, just very different stakes yes. that Oppenheim is dealing with in those moments. Yeah, no, I only just made that connection then. That's so interesting. That's such a good scene. That's like, that line that Ullman delivers is the equivalent of like Day-Lewis being like with the milkshake line for me, <laughs> where he's like, I have blood on my hands, and then he pulls the handkerchief. Oh my God. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. It's, it's... I heard like audible ga- a gasp around the entire theater <laughs> when he pulls out the handkerchief, and it's Suck. it's just so dry. And it's like, it's almost like the kind of, the dreaded personality of, like a a president who I'm sure is is meant to be, uh, we think about very personable presidents, and not that America's had any in the last few years, but <laughs> I guess Biden is personable, maybe, 
is humorous in the Wayne way cognizant. He, he, he cognizant. <laughs> <laughs> no exactly but then like the the sinister underbelly that is within that that personality and yeah that this is a man who i mean in a way he is absorbing oppenheimer of his guilt yeah that's really what he's trying to do in that moment that... but he's doing it in such a sinister way and this is such a tumultuous time for the united states on its underlay which everyone forgets about like that's the thing you know they were so happy to get out of the war mm. they'd beaten germany they they joined late but they had lost a lot but you know the guy who carried them through most of that war was franklin d roosevelt mm. and then he dies this guy comes in and <laughs> Yeah, who you know, Hoover comes in. Um, sorry, Truman, Truman comes in. Truman. Um, and basically finishes the job. And mm. it's so interesting because, yeah, you're 100% right. In that scene, he's basically saying, I'm the one who did it. You designed the tool, but I fired the shot. Yeah. It's my weight to bear, but it's also like, so stop being a sook. Like, yeah. it's definitely in that way. But it is interesting because it's that, at the end, at the end of the day, and Benny Safdie's character in Edward Teller has this this moment where it's like we created it, and then it just gets like shift off, and that's it. Like, that's do we it. really understand what we've done? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and like, are you able to to dust your hands and absorb yourself for whatever happens next? And obviously, Oppenheimer cannot do that. No. But at the, I don't think we see too much... Like, we see guilt of the moment. I don't know if we see... Uh, at the, as the result of the hearing, we mm. see guilt of, the obviously, his actions that had happened. The hearing occurs, I think, four years after this event. It's not too long after. I think it is early 50s. Yeah, yeah it's it's not too long. Um, but it, it's quite interesting because, obviously after all of this sort of ordeals closed and Strauss doesn't get to doesn't get his seat in, in, in Parliament, then we do cut forward to the early seventies and mm. Oppenheimer is awarded that Nobel Peace Prize, which um is quite interesting. Um the guilt aspects is is kind of crazy. It's it would be interesting to explore even a film that addresses the true loss of of life i think that the film yeah, touches I mean, on that a little in one scene but doesn't we do certainly it don't too... like cut away yeah that's the famous anime that actually showcases the bomb landing um did we watch that in murdoch we might did have. we watch that in a lecture i remember that yeah but there is uh, that's what i'm sort of saying we <laughs> don't get too crazy. much crazy we watch there's, that, there's yeah. one scene where they've just done the test and everyone's celebrating and then like you said the re- donkulously bright lights hit and we see a, a girl's face melting off. I think that um, scene is like peak Nolan. Yes. And, and like, I don't want to jump too much into what be my highlight scene, but I think there's something that Nolan is very, is doing very, it's very sub, uh, subversive what mm. he's doing in that scene. And not, not the fact that it's, we haven't even talked about the actual Trinity test yet, the actual no. explosion, but the fact that that's not the loudest scene in the film. And and I think I think a scene that's even louder than that is the the footsteps of yeah. all his team, like uh, stomping the ground as they wait for him to come in. And I think that's such a great way to display that it's almost like Oppenheimer himself is the the legend more so than the thing that he created. It's yeah. actually him. Um, but then just again with the sound design, like when the when one girl goes to cheer and you just hear like that that 
blood-curling scream come out instead, and that's when all the surrealistic sound design comes in. But again, it's very unlike Nolan to do that and yeah. to have skin peeling off and, and bodies getting burnt. I think, did I read this correct? I think that's Christopher Nolan's daughter who's getting all her skin burnt off. No. I don't know what that says about him casting her in that. Yeah, it's an interesting cameo. <laughs> I read that somewhere. I was like, really? That's a bit messed up. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? It's it's one of those scenes that's very powerful. And like you said, it, it, the bomb itself is probably not as loud nearly as much as the steps are. But It's so much more like a visceral and, and beautiful. Mm. And it's and it, again, it's like... I mean, we can argue about The Last Jedi or not, line, but I, I, I think you could very easily agree that the most prominent or affecting sound design in that entire film is five seconds of absolute silence. Yeah. And it's because it's unexpected. And I think this film does a very similar thing with the Trinity explosion. And then it's just all these, you know, close-ups of chain reactions continuing and exploding and everyone's just so in awe by what they're seeing. Yeah. But again, I think another subversive thing is that the, that's not the last scene in the film. It's it's barely in the last hour of the film. No. There's yeah, still so much more to go through, yeah. Because, yeah, we start to unpack why we're watching the Strauss sort of trials, which at first are kind of a little hard to follow. It feels like they're mostly just objectively talking about and analysing Oppenheimer's career. But it's yeah. like they said, it's a it's an informal hearing. There's not actually any jurisdiction or anything. Mm. It's mostly just a public spectacle more than anything. And, yeah. Um, obviously that unpacks very quickly that this is a, a revenge job for a, uh, <laughs> meeting, uh, well, a conference that occurred, a hearing that occurred five or six years earlier, which I still don't quite, I still don't get the joke that were being, uh, said at that hearing that led to, ah, oh, yeah. Um, they went over some, my head. Some coy joke, some, yeah. Some rich, uh, smarty pants jokes. But... I did I did see a meme I thought was really funny. Because I think that's the thing, is that with Strauss, or is it Straws? I think I think they, Oppenheim is corrected at the start of the film. Where there's there's several things that, that occur to make him so jealous of Oppenheimer. And one of them, of course, is when he passes Einstein. Mm. And he, do, he doesn't reply to him. And there's that image and then it's the image of Walter White being like, it's all about me. <laughs> which, <laughs> which I thought was excellent. Uh, but it's so true and it and it it just it feels so logical that they would have talked about something else. But again, it's about it's about Robbie Daniel Jr.'s character being so well, he's in his own headspace. He's he's blinded by his own ego in, in this moment and, and throughout this entire story really because it's all about taking Oppenheimer down and putting himself on top of the pedestal. Yeah. But that does lead to the final scene, that final reveal of what Oppenheimer does say to to Einstein. And I think, you know, we we, we talk about, like, should there be another film that, that goes more deeper into mm. the despair and, and, like, maybe we even see the explosion in Japan or we get a, a, a wider effect of, of how this is happening in society. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of deaths at that event but for me i think the guilt not even just for all the the surrealistic imagery and photography but it's that last line he has where he talks to einstein and says remember when we talked about potentially creating a chain reaction that that would never end that would destroy the mm. earth's atmosphere and he says i think we did and I, again i think that goes back to that that foot stomping scene and the fact that oppenheimer himself is 
he created a bomb, but the work that he did has, you know, for better or worse, inspired so much of the political espionage well, and, and potential I mean, it's warfare. It's the surrealist ending of, of having mm. all of the missiles being shot into the air yeah. and covering the earth in this... I remember saying, well, I'm glad I did this second because I don't think I could go watch Barbie <laughs> after this. <laughs> Which um, I had to, yes, I did. I mean, yeah, jump right into and Barbie it does, it, you know, seeing that scorched earth aspect and, you know, doesn't wasn't that so much more effective than Don't Look Up? Um, <laughs> but it is interesting um, in terms of uh, seeing that sort of sheer power and stuff and the fact that we really do live in a world where that's very viable mm. and it's just always going to be that sort of Damocles just hanging over our head. And, um, but the inevitability of that, because we constantly were growing, if, if anything, it's one of the most interesting pieces of, of dialogue that occurs between Strauss and, and, and Oppenheimer before he goes and speaks to Einstein is the fact that he thinks Einstein, yeah, you know, he was he was great. Mm. Um was like sort of like that's he and perpetually set, you know, the the innovations and and stuff that Einstein did is what set perpetually a lot of this stuff in in motion. Yeah. Um for other people to gain the knowledge and and that's so important about their conversation when he's talking about that you're going to accept that ward not for you. Mhm but for everyone that will before yeah. you know come yeah. after you but it it is quite interesting because it is that we have grown so self-aware of our own existence and and become so intelligent that yes we've created tools of destruction and mm. it, it seems a far cry from all those years ago where we were ramming boats into each other and <laughs> Firing big pieces of rock at each other. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I mean, you make an excellent point in terms of not even in, not even shifting the blame necessarily, but the fact that this is a chain reaction. There's always like pe- multiple people involved in even before Oppenheimer. But what I love is that the film, and it is based on the novel America and Prometheus. To be fair, mm. so it's probably apt that the opening quote in the film is the Prometheus quote about how he stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. He was forever chained to a rock and tortured for eternity mm. so i guess this film's thesis statement really is this is the most important man that ever lived yeah and i and i think as much as we can put i mean obviously einstein's work was crucial to that and that that he came before oppenheimer technically but oppenheimer is the man in the center of it so to speak yes and that i guess you know like the phrase goes fury can only take you so far yeah and he was able to apply that take that theory and amass a team and, and apply that theory into practice. Into a big ball that <laughs> blows up. Do you have um, anything else you'd like to add? Um, I would like to talk a little bit about the editing. I know we've already talked about mm-hmm. it to an extent, but I, I want to talk about... Well, I want, to, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. And would this film have served better as a miniseries a la Chernobyl? Because they actually are very similar, but of course, Chernobyl I really, I'm, I'm length. a big advocate for. I'm glad this is a film. Okay. In the sense that, uh, I think we often are quick to uh, be like, "Oh well, 
if we had 500 minutes, yes, we would be able to pace things out a little bit more, mm. obviously, and let things breathe and build and crescendo. But I just think a series, you know, and I haven't seen Chernobyl. I've, you I haven't seen Chernobyl? Man, it's been sitting on my what? shelf for like three years. Oh, my God. I just haven't been able it's to watch it. It's absolutely phenomenal, and it, man. And I, and I love a good series. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I think it's important sometimes that although things might get a little rushed, ed- editing might get a bit of uh, frantic and, and phonetic, but I think it's really important sometimes that these films, these three-hour Odyssey films do exist because, mm. yeah, we could... I mean, you wanting more or you wanting a bit of breathing room, yeah, I, I totally understand that. And I, I 100% could see this being a five-episode series, right? Mm where it's 60 minutes an episode. Um, and we would get a lot more, but I don't think we get the same impact off that, or right. it's a different impact. Um, I think you and I would get, uh, you know, those those who can appreciate those sort of seri- serialized formats, They we can get a lot out of that, but it is mm-hmm. good for people that can just sit in one place and take all the content in at once. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about... It's obviously Nolan, and I, f- I found it interesting in like a, a quick Q&A or yes or no response that he did. He was very much against doing a show ever, which I was a little surprised, because he's talked about doing video game work in the past, which mm. that kind of blew my mind a little bit that he said that. But, you know, he he's very much tied to his roots in film and in cinema, mm-hmm. and that, you know, sitting in a darkened room with hundreds of strangers and all watching this thing collectively and having this experience that you can only recreate in the cinema because going to a 70 millimeter IMAX screening of this film with the perfect Dolby Atmos soundtrack, you can't replicate that really at all with a miniseries. I mean, you can arrange events, I suppose, but I figure, right, you can't do it to the extent that the Oppenheimer film which is as close you're going to get to like a roadshow experience as you as you mm. can with the and we obviously very unfortunately can't watch the 70 millimeter the no. only one in the country is in melbourne which i think is an imax museum um so maybe one day we'll trek it yeah. <laughs> we'll drive off well, shame there. i was there a few weeks ago i know oh timing could have been um, so good but that's okay look i i as much as i sort of made my comments about the whip whiplash editing I don't. It didn't. It certainly didn't ruin the film for me at all. And the more I think about it, the more I realize how much of the film I retained. Um, I I'm like, you know what? I think it still worked out really well. And yeah. and like for the story of the film, I think the pace works to its advantage in a lot yeah. of ways. I think in, in if it was in the hands of another director, mm. sure, maybe we could easily. You know, if HBO picked up this concept. They one hundred percent could do a series mm. akin to Chernobyl on the same concept. However, like you said, because it's a Nolan film, on top of that, I mean, there's definitely, he's made multiple comments that sort of talk about why the optimal viewing experience, if you can't watch it in a cinema, is on a Blu-ray disc. That's the closest thing that you'll get to it. I like that he said that. Yes, he did. (laughs) Um, And he said, like, the streaming platforms, because of very similar things you've brought up, bit mapping certain color sciences yeah. they just aren't the optimal viewing experience no, for every not. film and um mm. why yeah and there are quite dark sequences in here and if this was on netflix boy oh boy good luck trying to watch <laughs> anything with anything that has blacks in it 
people people always tell me like oh you can just download it jake you can download then watch it i'm like but do i really want to it's like if i'm already succumbing to the streaming service how many people do that it's convenience how many people download it and then watch it i know well i know i know people like go on planes and they download stuff oh that's different though that's That's because you're going on a plane yeah so you're you're prepping in advance yeah i do that that scenario just for a plane if i was just watching at home i'm not gonna download it (laughs) wait there for it to download tick 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 yeah. yeah. No, no, I think that's a perfectly fine argument. And and the more I think about it, the more I'm not bothered by the editing yeah. of this film at all. And I would love to rewatch it because I think part of it is, is so dense and especially going into it, I didn't know who all these characters were and, and what the political hearings were all about. And I didn't know a lot of that stuff. So I think mm. rewatching it, just being able to focus on what the actual story is at hand would not just be like, I'm just waiting for my, I'm watching my watch until the explosion happens. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would enjoy it yeah. much more. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. No, that's fair. I mean, you got anything else you'd like to add? Um, I guess before highlight scenes, I got one last note in here. Ooh. Shout out to your boy, Ludwig Gorison. It's great score. The soundtrack is, yeah, just phenomenal. I will say, it's interesting because, like, obviously Hans Zimmer is the OG for Nolan. And I think Hans Zimmer's probably better at creating, like, memorable motifs and scores that you can hum on the way to work. Mm. You know, you forget the Dark Knight and Inception, they have very memorable scores. Yes. Um, while with with his latest scores or, or with Ludwig's latest scores, they don't really have those same motifs necessarily. You can't hum them but they're much more atmospheric. And yes. I think they, they sort of blend into the whole soundscape of the film much more organically, which I really appreciate. So is that, he's just that in Tenet? Or is he pushed back as um, far as Interstellar? I think, no, I think it was Tenet. I, he, did he do Dunkirk? I don't think so. Okay. I feel like Hans would have done Dunkirk. Let's find out. Pretty recent change. Yeah, yeah, just Tenet. So he's only worked on two films with Christopher Nolan. He's done it right. I didn't. I hey, all the problems that Tenet had, didn't have a problem with the score. Nope. It's the editing, confusing plot, <laughs> inaudible <laughs> dialogue. dialogue. <laughs> um, see, we're back on sync. There you go. There you go. We're back. It, it happened. We tail slated. That's we what did. we did. Zeke. Yeah. What's your highlight scene for Oppenheimer? Jeez, that's a toughie. I mean, there's there's a lot you could unpack here. There's like there's... 900 scenes in the film. So. There is. There is. <laughs> um. I was a big fan of the Casey Affleck scene. Mm, nice. um, there was that. He's got such a. Cre- I mean, he's got that perfect balance of somehow he manages to be a little creepy, but also very menacing. I mm. mean, um, he's been doing that ever since, like, the assassination of Jesse James. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to go with. Jesus. There's a, there's a lot you could pick. Um, I kind of spoiled mine early. It has to be the scene of the excited crowd and and them all sort of melting away. And for I'll me, that with, was just absolutely phenomenal. I think it's for me. It's two. I think the when the radio broadcast uh, says that they've dropped the bombs. Yeah, and we are that's going. That's another through, subversion of expectation. The yes. way where we find out that that information. And I agree. Yeah, because obviously that like he said, let me know when it actually happens. We've seen all these build up. We've saw the 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 boardroom scene where we've got a bunch of generals that are like yeah we're not going to do it there i, I go holidaying there and and then of course <laughs> like we we see matt damon's character leslie's he leaves he's like yep i've done my job i'm out of here so then we're just left to stoop mm. with with oppenheimer and 
and we're waiting for that call and he's like oh can you call him can you call him and he's he's becoming more and more neurotic and um in you know very self-conscious and and in himself not to mention all the stuff that's going to be happening shortly after that um with gene and then just out of nowhere we see that we hear the the truman broadcast of the the bombs being dropped and we actually get to see you know it's it's not just his reaction it's it's actually a lot of the ensemble cast some of them are very upset and what we see is the real scope and weight of what not just what oppenheimer had done but what everyone had done and it kind of juxtaposes like you said the scene that you're celebrating and cheering yeah where at that moment they feel like they've accomplished a, a project but in that moment when they're actually told those have dropped and they know how many people have just died yeah it's a heavy the, scene all, well all the excitement's happening outside all the cars and the cheering and you get twisted up and the flags in the background it's very patriotic that's what's happening outside but we're getting the insular view of just the very moment they're literally hearing that information and, where it's just that that momentary shock of like oh my god what have we done and it's a scene between two of the ensemble ones one of them being jack quaid from the boys, yep. the boys. um and he just shakes the other science there's a genuine yeah. weight to that reaction and where he does it because like he feels like that's what he has to do yeah but his facial expression doesn't quite read the same way yeah it's, it's very horrified. good sequence yeah. i liked it and it's good Excellent. to see uh just a friendly reminder the boys is coming back they're doing the oh the spin-off series gen v they're doing gen v nice i reckon it's gonna be trash. which uh, that sound that does that's a great premise it's like the teen or college version of the boys i just uh, i couldn't think of something i'm like it reminds me of um they did it with the witcher where like the, oh, okay. the witcher did like that spin-off series that was right. apparently crap but no one's wanting to watch the witcher anymore because Henry Cavill's gone. Well, he's in this season, but he won't be in the next season. So I was never, I never, well, I've never played The Witcher on on the PlayStation. So that's a surprise. That's a surprise because everyone it's loves it. It came. It's if it was like, if it came out like two years earlier, I would have played the hell out of that's it. That's how I feel with Red Dead. I just haven't gotten Red Dead Two. Red, I only played Red Dead Two because of COVID. Yeah. If it wasn't for COVID, I never would have beat that game. Never would have got anywhere near beating that game. Yeah. But it is one of the greatest narratives of all time. I yeah. think I need to I need to sit down and watch. You just need an extra forty five like, hours. To yeah, <laughs> just make it homework. It's homework. like an excellent, excellent, very long novel. Yeah, much like this film, an excellent, excellent, mm. very long film. Oppenheimer is currently out in cinemas near you. Go watch it, please. Go watch movies. It's made four hundred million in the box office already, which means uh, made its money back. Yeah, they can pay yeah. their writers. <laughs> well they're, they're one writer Christopher Nolan Barbie's on track for a billion in the next week it's crushing it's it it's crazy isn't it yeah well, we, I feel I'm like happy. we all I think I think it was pretty safe to say Barbie was going to win financially yeah the two if you asked me what was going to make a billion or not before it came out I probably would have said yes but um maybe not as quickly as it's probably going to get a billion Oh, it's go. at like 750 now and the sunday numbers haven't come in yet there you go wow it's it's like when avengers endgame came out i'm like weirdly anticipating it making money yeah even though it doesn't affect me in any way shape it or form. scares me if the the whole point is to make some mattel cinematic universe like um, yeah well that that's how there's an uno movie they announced 
Not Mattel. Was it Hasbro? I get, Hasbro I could, but I could see something like an Uno movie being very funny. Like in like a tag, like in a tag concept. No, I'd see it more like a... If it if they did an adult com like one of them adult comedies mm-hmm. with a child game concept like Uno, that's brilliant. I think, but that's yeah. just my opinion. If I was to make a Monopoly movie, for instance, I would just make it like inappropriate. Like I could see, yeah, because I mean, you you just have to think. You can't think emoji movie. You have to think outside the box. Yeah, you have to think kind of like Barbie. Where well, Barbie's still like insular because it's still like Barbie characters. Yeah. And oh, they go into the real world. But like, if you really think outside the box, like a Monopoly film, the kind of commentary you can have in that film, yeah, would be very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, saying. exactly. There you go. The hidden potential Hasbro. <laughs> Give us the rights. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do. It. We'll direct it for you. Yeah, we got this. We're, we're not scabbers. You got to pay your writers and actors first. Then we'll do it. Yes. Yeah, we ain't doing a pro bono. No. <laughs> no. That would be pretty funny, though. Speaking of... <laughs> way in, Zeke. Who is this? You don't have to pay us. <laughs> oh, God. No, we're not We're not those kind. No, we're I, not. The people, the people who put their hand up like, oh, I'll do it. It's like, okay, anyone who's like a self-proclaimed writer or actor, that's like, oh, this is my opportunity. It's like, okay, you clearly haven't done it. No. You clearly know what you're doing. Because otherwise you would understand how you're about to get ripped off. Yes. Simple as that. Well said, Jake. Well said. Thank Don't you. be a Muppet. <laughs> Speaking of what's coming out in cinemas near you, that's not the Monopoly movie, but Jake, no. what is coming out to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? There's not a lot coming to streaming, so you're probably going to have to get off the damn couch, everybody. Uh, you do have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 coming to Disney+. Plus. Okay. So, But who cares, because I cancelled it. Uh, and Adam Driver's 65, as well as several of the Spider-Man films. I think all the Mark Webb and... Um, Sam Raimi ones, and I think Homecoming. They're all coming to Amazon Prime mm. this week. Uh, but coming to cinemas, you got Jason Statham in Meg 2, The Trench. It's where he blows up sharks, or, or a singular shark. Who doesn't shark? Love a good shark sure. blow up? I know. It's, um, I'm not, I haven't seen a lot of these shark blow up films. I haven't seen The Meg. Haven't seen, is it, is it, is there a film called The Deep or something like that? There is. Oh. I haven't seen them. Excellent. Uh, Sharknado. I haven't seen any of those films. No, I've I've got taste. I'd like to think I've watched Sharknado once. Oh, you have. Okay, but that was in a drink to cringe. I saw one shark film. It's very obscure. It's called Jaws. I think I might have seen that too. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think we did on the podcast. Yeah, just maybe. I lied. I've never actually seen it. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I'll I'll introduce it to you one day. I'll okay. tell you all about its director. <laughs> Of which you saw the doco, like, months before I did. <laughs> <laughs> About my father, see Sebastian Telly's old-school Italian immigrant father, played by Robert De Niro, of his plans to propose to his all-American girlfriend, causing him to insist on crashing the weekend. There you go. Is it another one of them De Niro comedies? Yeah. Is it Meet the Wedding Crashes? Oh. I thought it was Dirty Italian Grandpas. <laughs> 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 Now that I like, I do like it. Uh, Chevalier tells the true story of Joseph Bologna. Bologna. I'm going to call him Bologna. The illegitimate son of an African slave and French plantation owner who goes on to become a celebrated violinist and composer and develops a relationship with Marie Antoinette. Was he in Marie Antoinette? I can't recall. We're going to have to go back and watch. There you go. The Miracle Club 
is set in Bally, Vermont Island 1960s, stars Maggie Smith, Laura Linney, and Kathy Bates as close friends on a pilgrimage to a sacred French town. Ensue a story of togetherness seek. Oh, geez, how old's Maggie Smith at this point? She She's is 192. <laughs> Couldn't imagine a friend group with Maggie Smith and Kathy Bates. Like, that was like. They're best friends, Zeke. Yeah. Fair enough. Maybe, maybe they're. How old is Kathy Bates? Oh, she's got to be in six, late 60s, I'd say. Reckon she could play Maggie Smith's daughter? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could pass it. Never know. I don't know how old Kathy Bates looks now, to be honest. That's the thing. We haven't seen like a recent... <laughs> we haven't seen a recent photo of her. I'm not saying you're Gotta old Gotta go Kathy. on TMZ or something. Yeah, I'm not saying you're old, Kathy. Don't hit me with we, the sledgehammer. We love Kathy. <laughs> in her greatest role of all time. Uh, we've also got a film based on the critically acclaimed novel... On the Wandering Paths, which sees a famed writer and explorer defy all odds when he decides to explore France on foot despite recovering from a recent fall and coma. Oh. Mm. Interesting. Looks very aspirational, Zeke. Ah. Yes. Lust for life. You can do it. I can. He can walk France after uh, post-coma, but he can't get paid as a writer of the WGA. There you go. I'm just going to sneak in as many of those as we can until the... Pay your writers. <laughs> until the strike is over. And finally, I was a little surprised because I thought this film got delayed because of the strikes. Okay. But uh, PlayStation's Gran Turismo is getting preview screenings at Hoyt's this week. Uh, it tells a real-life story of a gamer-turned-competitive racer, John Maddenborough, as he transitions from his bedroom onto the racetrack for a Gran Turismo program. Have you seen the trailer for this? Yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah, I I think it's smart that they're taking this angle. Yes, it's a real life story. I think, and they've obviously they've capitalized on that David Harbor yes. grumpy Stranger Things <laughs> grumpy dad mentor. Vibe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's enough there to warrant a watch. I probably will watch it, and yeah. I you know what I'll probably go with my brother because he's he loves Gran Turismo, loves love loves it. Like we'll yeah. steal my PS5 to play Gran Turismo Seven, loves yeah. it. So I can see us going. It seems very, like, uh, what's the word? Mainstream. Yes. I mean, this is a film that will appeal to many, many people. Apparently, Twisted Metal is excellent. The Twisted Metal series. It looks fun. Yeah. I think Anthony Mackie's a good cast for mm. that. I mean, I, I, hey, I've never even played Twisted Metal. It tells you how mm. obscure that game is for, you know, uh, most gamers, I'd say. But, yeah, I'll take it. Another hit out of the PlayStation. It kind of looks like a quirky studio. Mad Max. I think that's yeah, the vibe. Yeah, that's the vibe. Like Mad Max. I saw someone say, like, oh, it looks like that episode of Rick and Morty. I'm like, you mean Mad Max? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can we just, like, please trace it back to... The... <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, what was it? I think... Don't cite Rick and Morty. Because there was this... I know. There was this... Uh, the Sifu video game. There's, like, an homage to Old Boy in it with, like, the hallway fight scene. Yeah. And I think someone was like, oh, it's the scene from Daredevil. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> that Jake, really Jake, bugs me. you haven't waved your cane. I know, yeah. I know. I'm I'm De Niro in that movie I mentioned earlier. <laughs> I, did I mention that? You can be in the Portuguese uh, knockoff version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as long as it makes money. Yeah. As long as it makes money. Self-proclaimed capitalist. My Portuguese wedding. <laughs> uh, I can't God. believe they're making a... Another Big fat Greek, Greek yeah. wedding. It's I exciting. I can't believe it's wild, and it looks okay. It looks like fine. Yeah. It honest. I I joked. I went. 
that's like the Mamma Mia cast. They just want to do it just so they can go to on holiday in Greece. Yeah, no, exactly. It. It's the Adam Sandler effect. Yep, hundred percent. Can't blame him. Well, I mean, is that not genius? Go on holiday, bring some camera people, and make hundreds of millions of dollars in the box office while you're at it. Oh, I think Adam Sandler's a genius. I mean, yeah. with those murder mystery films that were like the most oh, yeah. serviceable, okay films. <laughs> but like, he just wanted to go to exotic locations and no, film a murder. A murder? Yeah, well. That's great. We're not going to catch any, any of those no, no. next week on the show. We had to look into the Cinema Sideshow archive or hit list or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, for a film that sort of lines up. Normally, when we have a an empty week like this, Jake, we look back and see what films came out at this time in the year mm. and if there are any cool anniversaries coming up. Jake, yeah, what are we watching? So we, we found one, Zeke, almost to the date, a 40-year yes. anniversary. So we thought that hits the spot. Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching... Risky business. So your folks are going out of town. Just use your best judgment. You know we trust you. You got the place all to yourself. <laughs> A good time show. In the privacy of your own home. Just take those old records off the shelf. That's her. She's fantastic. An upper-class suburban teenager dares to turn his family home into a brothel while his parents are on holiday. However, his recklessness leads to an unfathomable fiasco. I like how vague it is. Very early Tom Cruise role too, which obviously ties into Mission Impossible uh, Dead Reckoning coming out in the last couple of weeks. So I think it's a good time. Dead Reckoning Part 1. Part 1. Don't forget. The ever-important Part 2 is around. Um, And yeah, obviously, you know, (laughs) we haven't seen very early. I think the earliest you might have seen him is Top Gun. I think Uh, I saw him a little early with uh, The Color of Money. You're probably right. Let's find out. I think Rain Man came after. I never saw Rain Man. I've seen Eyes Wide Shut, but that was obviously much later in his career. Uh, let's see. New. Or let's do earliest first. Yeah, you're right. For me, it would be Top Gun. Yeah. There you go. And then Risky Business. Uh, the Color of Money actually came out in the same year as Top Gun. Oh, there you go. There you go. I did not know Fun that. Fun film. Do love that film. Excellent. And then, of course, 92 is Far and Away with Nicole Kidman. Is that where they, uh, is that where they met? I don't know. I'm they not married. I'm not married, good. are they? They were for a while. Oh. That was the whole thing. Oh. Who's he married to now? I don't even know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Someone who's probably 
way taller than him. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Risky Business. He's going to kick our door down. <laughs> you cannot be serious.